Let's pray before we look to God's Word. Father, what a gift your Word is to us, the Word of the King to rebels, sinful people. We need it. We desire it with your help, and we want to obey it by your Holy Spirit. Help us and form us to be the people with which you take your blessing to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began a new series for the fall semester called Journeys of Faith. We looked at Noah last week, and over the next several weeks, we'll be looking at a different character from the Old Testament, and we'll be learning about how their life of faith instructs us to be faithful, more faithful followers of Christ today. Uh, this morning is the second sermon in this series, and as Mr. Al said, we'll be focusing on the life of Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> um, Abraham is without question the most important human character in the Old Testament. It is through Abraham that God officially launches his plan to rescue the world from evil and reverse the curse that he placed on the world in the garden. Genesis 1 and 2 is the picture of goodness. God created his world so good. Sun, moon, stars, plants, animals, everything was orderly and beautiful. God created human beings in his image to thrive in the world with creativity, to reflect his glory back to creation and continue to make the world a prosperous, fruitful place. But what happened? Genesis 3, boom, spiral downward with the fall. Man rejected God, and Genesis 3 through 11 is an intense downward spiral from the garden all the way to Babel with human beings constantly rejecting God over and over and over again. It is a very bleak story. But as we'll see in our passage, God promises to bless the world again through Abraham. He says he's going to bless all the families of the earth through him. He's going to make everything right again. And from the New Testament, we know that ultimately God's blessing came to the world through Jesus, the true seed, the true son of Abraham, the savior of the world. From a human standpoint, Abraham is the main character in the book of Genesis. He has a huge story. Chapters 11 through 25 are devoted primarily to him. But interestingly, we are able to catch a glimpse of Abraham's whole life and calling by looking at three simple verses in Genesis 12. So I invite you to turn there with me now. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. That's page 8 in the Bibles we've provided for you. 
Listen to God's word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It really is difficult to overstate the importance of this passage. Many Bible scholars have referred to the passage we've just read as the hinge on which the whole Bible swings. Biblical scholar William Dumbrell has said that contained in these words is the theological blueprint for the entire redemption of the world. (laughs) This is huge. God is rescuing the whole world from evil. He is restoring His creation to its original goodness. A massive project. And yet He calls upon Abram, or Abraham as his name will become. Don't let that throw you off. We'll be referring to him as Abraham this morning. He calls upon Abram to help him. To play an important part in restoring the world to order again. And God calls us too. He doesn't call us into a relationship that's pending until we get to heaven. He has a mission for us to do on earth. And what we learn from this passage is that like Abraham, God calls us and blesses us so that we might be a blessing to others. God calls us and blesses us so that we might be a blessing to others. This morning, we just want to walk through this passage. Abraham teaches us four principles that must guide our life of faith. We're called to the same calling, in a sense, as Abraham, this great man of faith, was. And here are four points of similarity, four principles that should guide our lives of faith. First, God calls us by His grace. God calls us by His grace. Notice the opening words of verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, These, you're thinking, what in the world? He's going to make a point out of this. Well, has God ever spoken to you like that? These words seem fairly ordinary to us until we understand that God and Abram were not exactly on speaking terms with one another. The genealogy in chapter 11, I hope you have kept your Bibles open, just glance at it. The genealogy in chapter 11 informs us that Abraham came from a family that was steeped in pagan tradition. Did you know that? Abraham and his family lived in the city of Haran, which was known far and wide for its worship of the moon god Sin. Incidentally, it's spelled S-I-N. 
But what the book of Genesis hints at to us in genealogy, the book of Joshua confirms to us in a speech. In Joshua 24, 2, just listen. Joshua is reminding the people of Israel how God gave them the land of Canaan, the promised land, as a gift. And he says to them, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and listen, and they served other gods. Abraham was not a man of goodwill. Abraham was not a God-fearer. Abraham was not on a quest for truth. Abraham was an idolater. He worshipped idols. Full-blown idolatry. He was completely and utterly lost. But amazingly, God spoke to him. He hadn't spoken to anyone in Abraham's family for ten generations. But God speaks to him. He called him out of darkness by his grace. And if you're in Christ this morning, you've had the same experience. You had made enemies with God. You had broken his law. And you had felt certain that your life would be much better without him. But God spoke to you in your brokenness and gave you hope. How true are those words we sang a moment ago. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life. And it always does, doesn't it? A healthy alternative had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. Our relationship with God depends on His initiative just as God spoke in Genesis 1, in the silence, in the chaos, broke the silence with his word to create the world, so God breaks the silence, the darkness, the chaos in our lives by speaking, calling us by his grace. The Lord said to Abraham. Second, God commands us to respond to His grace. God commands us to respond to His grace. In other words, He gives us something to do. A pastor friend of mine was once sharing a taxi with three other pastors. They were on their way to a conference. And you know, the, the poor taxi driver found himself quickly surrounded and being evangelized from every angle, as you might expect. But surprisingly, the weight of the pastor's words began to find a place in the taxi driver's soul. And he asked them in true New Testament fashion, what must I do to be saved? But before any of the other pastors could answer that question, 
a young and sort of contentious pastor quickly retorted, nothing. You don't have to do anything. God does it all. Now, friends, that pastor was very right and very wrong. Let me tell you what I mean. Yes, we are only saved by grace. Were it not for God's initiative, we would be totally hopeless. But we must do something. When God reaches out his hand to us in love, we'd better not admire his cuticles with our hands in our pockets. We better take it. And that taking of God's hand is what the Bible calls faith. Now, to be sure, as Brady said, our faith is also a product of God's grace. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8 that our faith is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And yet, when Paul is asked by the Philippian jailer in the midst of an earthquake what he must do to be saved, Paul, without hesitation, gives him something to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Can you imagine if Paul had said, nothing, (laughs) we're going to (laughs) die, nothing. So faith is how God commands us to respond to his grace. Look at how God commanded Abraham to respond to his grace. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Excuse me. The doctor told me that Gulf Shores would clear up my cold. It did not happen. Abraham did not have a clue where he was going. But he followed God anyway. In verse 7 of chapter 12, we learn that God eventually led him to Canaan, the promised land. But the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham's departure was a great act of faith. Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Note just for a second the relationship between faith and obedience. The New Testament knows nothing of faith that does not lead to obedience. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. (laughs) But not only did Abraham not know where he was going... He was to make a decisive break with everything he had ever known. Uh, Derek Kidner is a commentator of Genesis, and he writes that at this point, Abraham must exchange the known for the unknown. And does this sound familiar? Jesus gave his disciples a similar call, didn't he? Flip over with me to Mark Chapter 1, 
That's page 836 in the Bibles we've provided for you. Mark chapter 1. Look with me at how Jesus called his first disciples in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Mark writes, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther... He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Jesus called these men by his grace, and then he commanded them to respond in faith. Follow me. Leave everything. And follow me. Does Jesus command us to leave everything and follow him? That's a difficult question, isn't it? Because we too have families. Like Abraham. Like the disciples. It's a tricky question. The clearest answer to that question, in my opinion, comes from another pastor. He's been in it longer than I have. And the clearest way I know to explain it to you is by simply reading four or five sentences that he's written. So listen to this from Pastor Stephen Cole. Sometimes a person must make a break with family in order to follow Jesus, as painful as that is. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 26. He did not mean that we should despise or needlessly alienate our families. The Bible is clear that we are to honor our parents' children and love our families. New Christians especially need to be sensitive and respectful toward family members who oppose Christianity. But Jesus did mean that if our closest loved ones stand between us and him, our choice is clear. We must follow Christ. Interestingly, if we look further in Genesis 12, flip back with me there, at verses 4 and 5, we discover that Abraham was allowed to take some of his family with him. Verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, way to leave everything, Abram, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. God wasn't commanding Abraham to leave all responsibility. 
He was commanding Abraham to leave only what his sinful heart clung to for security. God would not call Abraham out of idolatry only to allow him to continue to worship the false gods of country, of comfort, and of family. God demanded all of Abraham's faith. What is it that's keeping you from following God's call? Has the Lord called you to himself to trust in him for salvation, but you just couldn't bear to break that to your family? Maybe you come from a different tradition outside of the U.S. where that's very prominent. Maybe the Lord has called you to the mission field, Tanzania. But really, Lord, come on, we have children. Young men, young women, has he called you to a life of purity, but you don't have the courage to tell your boyfriend or your girlfriend it's time to move out? What's keeping you from putting all your trust in God and obeying him fully? It might not be the moon god's sin, but you may be certain that it is an idol. Jesus stretches out his nail-pierced hand to you in love. But in order to take his hand in faith, you've got to let go of everything you're holding on to for security. It's what he demands. And it's what he deserves. What's holding you back from God's calling on your life? Drop it. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Because, third, God promises to bless us. God promises to bless us. And friends, God's blessings far outweigh his commands. God tells Abraham to do one thing. Go. But then he begins to heap promises of blessing on him. The passage continues with God's repetitive promise of, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God promises to bless Abraham in three ways. First, God promised to make a great nation of him. And I will make of you a great nation. Referring, of course, to the nation of Israel that would come from Abraham's line. As you know, Sarah was barren. She had no child. But if Abraham would only step out in faith, God would bring life to Sarah's barrenness and make Abraham the father of a great multitude, which is what the name Abraham means. Abram, Tim Keller has said, um, Abram means daddy, and Abraham means big daddy. So that's what God did in his life. Second, um, so these, these are the three blessings that God gave to Abraham. Second, God promised to bless Abram generally, just generally speaking. God tells him, I will bless you. If you were to read the account of Abraham's life in Genesis, you would discover that God blessed him with wealth, with offspring, and with success. 
And through these blessings, God promised to bless Abraham in a third way. He would make his name great. In contrast to the builders of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, who sought to make a name for themselves, that's literally what the passage says, Abraham would receive his great name from God as a gift. God would make him famous in all the world. But this language also implies royalty. Later in the Old Testament, God would say the same thing to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. So God promises to give Abraham the status and notoriety of a king. Later in his life, the Hittites refer to him as a prince. So we see God beginning to fulfill this kingly notoriety that he promised to Abraham. But even more importantly, God promises to make Abraham the father of a greater king. Yes, David, but ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see how God's blessings to Abraham far outweighed his commands? By, by this point, we've even forgotten what, <laughs> what, um, what God called Abraham to do. Remember he called him to go? We've kind of been glazed over in our, in our eyes with how many promises he's given to Abraham. But the same is true for us. God's blessing to us far outweighs his commands. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.14 that we who are in Christ, we who are trusting in Christ for salvation, have received the true blessing of Abraham, the promised spirit through faith. God blesses us with the Holy Spirit. And not only that, but Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3 that we who are in Christ have been blessed with Every spiritual blessing. You realize how blessed we are. And now, you might think, yes, that's, 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 you might feel a little bit gypped at this point. So Abraham got land and silver and gold and possessions, and he got eternal life, but, but, but we, we get the Holy Spirit. And I'm trying to pay my bills this month. So tell me how this is greater. Right? I know you're thinking it because I thought it. Two things. First, we enjoy God's blessing now. Abraham didn't receive everything that was promised to him. Hebrews 11 Verse 13, Abraham died in faith, not having received the things promised. He was still waiting for everything. He didn't see the nation of Israel develop. He didn't see the great kings that would come from his line. He He died waiting in faith for these things to happen. But you and I receive the Holy Spirit who seals us with the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of pardon, the guarantee of eternal life now and forever. We enjoy that security now. God gives us security. 
So that's the first thing. We enjoy our blessings now. And secondly, our spiritual blessings will, in, will ensure our material blessings for all eternity. Our spiritual blessings will ensure our material blessing for all eternity. When Paul says, you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, he's not talking about a ghostly, intangible thing forever. He's saying that this forgiveness of sins that you have, even though you might not see it, you receive it by faith, will eventually turn in to tangible enjoyment in the new heavens and the new earth when you will see God face to face and experience his material blessing forever as kings and queens over his new creation. Abraham's material blessings would go to his descendants. He couldn't take it with him. But our blessings remain forever and even intensify in the age to come. Just as Jesus said, whoever leaves everything will receive a hundredfold in the age to come. Our blessings are better, our blessings are richer, and our blessings last forever. So here we have this whole heap of blessing, each one of us who are in Christ. We have this whole heap of blessing. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to be like Scrooge McDuck and dive into the pot of gold and swim in it and do the backstroke and all of our blessings and wait for the Lord Jesus to return? Certainly not. That's not the intention. Our fourth point is that God plans to bless others through us. He plans to bless others through us. Did you notice why God blessed Abraham? Listen again to verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God blessed Abraham so that Abraham would bless others. So that he would be God's instrument in reversing the curse of evil and making the world a better place. But while we see glimpses of Abraham blessing others in the later accounts of his life, we see it even clearer when we look further down his family line. Let me just give you one example. The final chapters of Genesis provide us with the story of Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph was favored by his father, Jacob, so much that it made his older brothers jealous and they sold him into slavery in Egypt. You know the story. But through Joseph's misfortune, God was blessing the world. In Genesis 39, verse 5, we read that the Lord blessed the house of Potiphar through Joseph. Eventually, Joseph is promoted to second in command over all Egypt. And when famine hits the land, we read in Genesis 41 that all the earth, all the earth, including Joseph's brothers, came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. 
And at the end of the story, when Joseph's brothers discover who Joseph had become and ask his forgiveness, Joseph replies, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive, literally saved as they are today. It's amazing. But God was still planning an even greater blessing for the world. 2,000 years later, our Lord Jesus, the greatest son of Abraham, would leave his father, leave his wealth, leave his comfort, leave all his blessing to give his life for the world. Listen to what Jesus said in John 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now God calls us to do the same thing. He wants to bless the world through us. He wants to use us as his instruments to make the world right again. So what do we need to do? Two things, two brief things. First, as a church, we must resist the urge to look primarily inward and look primarily outward. Yes, we need a new building. God knows that. And God willing, he will supply the funds and we'll build it. But in the meantime, we must be on mission in this city to bring God's blessing where there is barrenness. Has God pricked your heart through these counterculture videos? Is God calling you to adopt or to work to alleviate suffering in Baton Rouge? Is God calling you to bridge the racial gap between Baton Rouge and Prairieville? Or to reform the education model that we have in this state, in this city? Don't snuff out the light of God's calling in your life. Look around you. Look outward. Don't just look here at Crosspoint. Look outward and see how God wants you to be a blessing to others and then do it with God's help. Second, we must each take responsibility where God has currently placed us. God does not work only through church programs and ministries. He works through individual, ordinary Christians who want to see God's kingdom reshape our world. So where has God currently placed you? Your job your home, your neighborhood. Your situation is not arbitrary. God called you to it. If you're in that job, it's a calling. If you're in that home, it's a calling. If you're in that neighborhood, it's a calling. How many of your neighbors do you know? How many of your neighbors, if they were going through a life crisis, would say, that's a Christian who lives at the corner house over there, and I'm going to go talk to him or her about it. Guys, if I'm struggling with it, I know you are. Imagine 
It, just imagine if you had a family, a neighborhood family over to your house once a month. Within a year, you would be very well acquainted with the entire vicinity of which you live. That's how we bring blessing to barrenness. We make these gospel friendships. We take our blessing and we bless others through it. But in this we can be assured that our Lord Jesus will never call us to do something that he has not done first himself. He left his father. He left his glory. He left his comfort. He laid down his life for us that he might bless us beyond measure. Won't we, won't you now do the same for others? We are called, we are blessed that we might be a blessing to the whole world, just like Abraham, just like Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have truly blessed us beyond measure. We have better promises, better blessings. You have equipped us with every good work. Help us to be good stewards of that blessing. Help us when you call us by your grace to leave everything and put our faith in you, follow you. Help us to be your change agents, your instruments here on earth as you are making the world right again. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.